right, we are going to get started now. It's good to see you all tonight. We're in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. And we'll pick up in verse 24. Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, the word by which you sanctify us and Lord, cause us to grow and to, uh, Lord, walk and conform our life to yours. Lord, we do pray that tonight we would, Lord, consider what it means to be a disciple of Christ, that, Lord, you are calling us to uh, forsake everything, Lord, to give up everything, even our own life, Lord, that we are called to be your slaves and that we have to submit to you in all things. So, Lord, keep us from believing, Lord, that we can live a carefree and a careless life, Lord, seeking our own pleasures and our own desires, uh, Lord, or keeping back uh, some of our life for ourselves and only, Lord, submitting part of our life to you. Lord, show us that uh, we need to be completely, Lord, wholly devoted to you in all things, and that, Lord, this is where your blessing is found. So, Lord, we pray that you help us tonight as we study your word, Lord, that you would give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, well, we're in this passage in Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus is giving uh, to his disciples instructions for them going out uh, on this uh, trip where they're going to go two by two into various villages and preach the gospel. They're going to preach that the kingdom of God is at hand and call people to repent of sin and to trust in Christ. And then he's giving to them instructions and teaching them of what it's going to be like 
as his followers, as his disciples. And what he's saying, though they were the immediate audience when he gave this, it is not merely true for them, but it is true for all of those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord, right? He is our Lord. He is our master. And as our master, then we are his slaves and we have to do his will and what he calls us to do. And he's the one that des- that determines what it means to be a faithful slave. So we are not yes. the determiner and the arbitrator of what it means to be faithful, what it means to be obedient, as if we can set it according to our own whims and wishes. But it is Christ himself who defines what it means to be his disciple. And then he will be the one that will judge us to determine whether or not we were a faithful disciple. Right. right. So we can't believe lies and delusions that everything is fine, that we're all good when we're not denying ourselves and following after Christ. So we have to be completely devoted to his will and to doing those things that are pleasing to Christ. So he's been telling them about the dangers that they're going to face, that being a disciple and being one of his followers, and especially for them as the holy apostles and those who would go out and preach the gospel, that there were going to be many harsh Uh, circumstances, many afflictions, many sorrows, many tribulations, many persecutions, that they will have people turn against them, even be brought before governors and kings because of the sake of Christ. Even their own family will turn against them, brother against brother, father against child, child against the parent because of Christ, and that we have to endure until the very end. So this is what he's teaching them about the hardships and the sufferings of the Christian life. And it's something that we must be acquainted with. We must have our minds set on these things that to be a Christian, to live a godly life, does not mean a life of ease and luxury and pleasures and comforts in this present world. But rather, it will entail hardships and sufferings that come to us from the hand of God. And we should not expect to have a life of ease and pleasure. So that's what he is preparing them for, the very difficult road that will be before them and how they need to have their mind set for action and they need to gird up themselves and press on and endure into the kingdom of God. Okay, so we're going to pick up in verse 24 tonight where he's continuing uh, of why this shouldn't be shocking to us, right? Why this should not shock us and really... It's an issue of justice and what is right in the sight of God. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? When we look in the word of God and we see the way that Jesus Christ was treated when he was the incarnate son of God, when he came to the earth and he lived among us and he lived the life that he lived, when he performed his public ministry and he taught clearly the word of God, he was not received with great fanfare by many, many people. He was not universally adored, universally loved. Everyone was not seeing his praises, but rather we see consistently throughout the gospels that Jesus had many enemies many detractors, many who rose up against him, they were constantly ridiculing him and doing these types of things, right? This is what was true of Christ. Well, in terms of our relationship to Christ, he is the one with the superior position, 
He ranks above us. He is ahead of us, and we are his inferiors. We are below him. And here he uses the relationship of a disciple and a teacher and a slave and a master. In the relationship between a teacher and a disciple, obviously it's the teacher who has the higher rank, who has the higher position over and above the disciple. And in terms of the master-slave, the master has a higher rank or a higher position over and above the slave. And everyone knows this, right? This is a universally recognized principle and truth, right? So it should not be shocking to us, right? It is a matter of fairness of what is right, right? How can it be that the head should suffer such hardship, that the head would have such persecutions and afflictions and be treated with such contempt in this life, and then the body would be unscathed, that the body would never suffer at all. The body would have ease and luxury and comfort, good health, long life. Everyone loves them. Everyone sing their praises, but they had to be treated with such contempt. Is this right? Would this be right in terms of justice, in terms of the way things are, in terms of this principle? No, this isn't the case at all, right? That the master would be treated like the scum of the earth while the servants live a life of ease and luxury and pleasure. It cannot be. So this relationship of superior to the inferior, how can the inferior expect better treatment than his superior? It cannot be. And typically, the superior has better treatment than the inferior. Right? Isn't this true like in warfare? If a common soldier is captured by the enemy, and then a general is captured by the enemy, typically speaking, the general will be treated with more respect, he'll have better living conditions, he'll be treated in a more honorable way than the common soldier. And this would be the case as well with a master and a slave. The people will treat the slave with more contempt than the master because the master at least is a man of authority. He's a man who has some position. This is the way it typically is in society, it, that the superior has better treatment than the inferior. Well, if our superior, who is Jesus Christ, was treated like this. And what did they do to him? Yeah. They called the head of the house Beelzebub. They called him the prince of demons. They called him the father of lies. They called him the devil himself. This is what they said of Christ. You are, you're not the son of God. You're not God incarnate. You're the devil incarnate. You're the devil come in human flesh. That's what they've done to the master of the house. And then who is his household? Who are his servants? Who are his disciples? Well, we are. If they said that about him, then how can we expect that they're not going to say the same things about us? How can we expect to live a life without any hardships, without any difficulties, without any sufferings? And in terms of our sufferings in comparison to Christ, they don't even compare. Right? They don't even compare. So it's not like Christ is even calling us to suffer more than he did, but to suffer in some degree the way that he did. The head suffered, and now it is necessary for the body to fill up the sufferings of Christ, right? To complete the measure of those sufferings of Christ. And isn't this what the Lord said to Ananias whenever he was telling him about Saul? That he was going to teach him, God was going to show him, how much he must suffer for my sake. Right. That he was a choice instrument of God specifically for suffering. For suffering. 
And this is the way it is for all believers. It is enough for us to be like our teacher, to be like our master. This is what we should strive for. And if the master and teacher was treated like this, then we should not be surprised and shocked when the world treats us the same way. How can they love us when we don't belong to them? We belong to Christ. And this is why the world will hate us just as they hated our master and our Lord. So he's telling them, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. And we shouldn't be surprised either. Yet, typically what happens when people suffer? They don't know what to do with it. They're completely shocked and surprised and bewildered, right? They have a crisis of faith, right? They get very anxious and perplexed because they're going through some hardship or suffering. When the Bible tells us repeatedly over and over and over again, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as if something strange were happening to you. No, it's not strange. It's not uncommon. What should be strange and uncommon is if we never suffer at all. Right. right? That is what is uncommon for the Christian life, is a Christian who never suffers any hardship. Because, according to Titus, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And if you're not suffering persecution, then what is the natural conclusion? You're not living a godly life. You're not living a godly life in Christ Jesus. So, we should not be bewildered, perplexed, anxious, shocked, when they will malign the members of the household. They did it to Christ, they will do it to us. Actually, it should be a badge of honor, a badge of honor to suffer for the name of Christ. Isn't that the way the disciples were when they were mistreated, when they suffered there in the early days in Acts chapter 5, that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And this is how we should be as well. Verse 26, Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Now, on the one hand, he's saying, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't be taken back whenever you face suffering. But then on the other hand, whenever that suffering comes, and whenever we think about it, our natural tendency is to be fearful. To be fearful, to think and to wonder, what's it going to be like? What am I going to have to endure? How hard is it going to be? But Jesus tells us, do not fear them. Do not have any fear of these persecutors, of men who are going to do these types of things to you. So he forbids us, right? You see that. Therefore, do not fear them. He's, that's a commandment. Do not fear them. Fear, anxiety. These are sins whenever we have them in this way, right? There is a natural fear that is good and right in terms of preservation of our life. For example, if you see a bear roaming wild in the streets, you should be afraid and run into your house, okay? So that is natural, normal fear that is good for the preservation of life. But here he's talking about sinful fear. There is a sinful fear that is coming from anxiety, from anxiousness, from lack of trust in God. We know that the sufferings come to us from God. He's the one, ultimately, that brings about the affliction, 
Therefore, we should not be afraid of them. We should not fear them, and we should not fear people in what they are doing. The reason is, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Ultimately, everything is going to be brought to light on the Day of Judgment. Everything that they do against you in secret, every backroom meeting that they have, every slanderous word that they say, Right, Every plan or plot that they have against the righteous that they do in secret dark corners, ultimately all of these things will be revealed by Christ on the day of judgment. And who will get the victory over their enemies? The righteous, right? Christ and his people will have victory over their enemies. And so don't fear them. Even if they exercise some kind of power over you, it's only going to be temporarily. It'll only be for a short moment. And then ultimately, Christ will give us victory over them. So why should we fear them, seeing that in the end, we will triumph over them? And there's nothing that they can do to us apart from the will of God. Do not fear them. There's nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews 4.13, Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him whom we have to do. So no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open, laid bare. To the eyes of him whom we have to do. So everything is open and bare in the sight of God. Whatever they're doing, whatever they're plotting and planning against the righteous, it is all open and bare in the sight of God. God knows exactly what they're doing. And does God have the power to stop them? Of course, of course he does. So if we are afraid of them, then it shows that we do not trust who? God. We don't trust God. We don't believe that God is able to care for and protect his people. So it's a lack of faith that would lead us to fear. Because if we believe in the day of judgment, and if we believe in him who is unseen, the unseen God, who himself sees all things. So yes, we don't see God, but does God see us? Yes. Does God see everything that's taking place in this world? Yes. yes. So why should we be afraid seeing that our God is aware of everything, and ultimately he will reveal it on the day of judgment. Also, Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15 and verse 3. Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. So there, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, right? There's no place, no, nowhere on this earth where the eyes of the Lord are not, where God cannot see what is happening. He's watching the evil and the good. He's watching everyone, and he sees every deed. He hears every word. He knows everything that is going to happen. This is why we should not have any fear. Verse 27. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. 
the temptation when we're facing hardships, sufferings, persecutions, because we're living a godly life and because we're preaching the word of God, right? We're saying and we're speaking the truths of God's word. The temptation is for us to be silent, to be quiet, to say, you know, because I'm suffering because of the word of God, then I'll just keep my mouth shut. I just won't say anything. I'll be silent and I just won't say anything about what's going on. And then no one will get mad at me. And then I won't have to face any hardships or sufferings. The temptation is to keep silent, to keep our mouth closed, to not speak up in order to avoid suffering. But here, Jesus tells us that can't be an option. What he tells us in the darkness, we have to speak in the light. What he whispers in our ear, we have to proclaim on the housetops. We have to speak openly, boldly, clearly, right, forthrightly about the word of God, about what Christ tells us, even if the result of that is hardships and sufferings, right? We have to do these types of things. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, this is what happened with the apostles. Acts 5, verse 17. It says, But the high priest rose up along with all of his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Here, already the apostles had been put in public jail because of their preaching of the word of God. Okay, Then the angel of the Lord lets them out in the middle of the night, and he tells them to do what? To go back into the temple, into a public place, and begin preaching the word of God again. They were put in prison for preaching the message of life. They were released from prison by the miracle of God. But they were told to again go preach the message of life. So don't be silent. Even though you've already been imprisoned by it, go and preach the word of God again. Do it even more. And then this is what they did. So we can't be fearful. We can't be fearful and we cannot be silent. Now, how do we overcome this? Verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The way we overcome fear is through fear. We overcome fear of man by having the fear of God. This is the way we overcome fear, is to have our fear directed in the proper way. Whenever we fear man, it's sinful. But whenever we fear God, it's not sinful. This is wisdom, right? This is who we should fear. And the way that we are going to overcome our fear of man is to fear God. And what specifically about God should we fear? That he can destroy soul and body in hell. The worst a man can do is to kill your body. A persecutor, the worst punishment, right? The worst thing that could possibly happen to us in this life in terms of persecution is for someone to kill us because of our faith in Christ. Like Stephen, or like the Apostle Paul, or like Jesus Christ, or like Peter, or like many others in the Bible 
who suffered martyrdom, who were killed and put to death unjustly because of their faith in Christ and because they lived a godly and a righteous life. Okay, typically when there's someone who's threatening to kill our body, it does bring about fear, right? It brings about fear. But here, he says, don't fear those who can merely kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul, right? They have no ability to do anything to your soul the worst they can do is kill your body, and then after that, there's nothing more they can do. Even if they drag your body through the street, if they dismember your body, if they burn your body, right? If they leave it for the birds to, of the air to eat, whatever they do, after you're dead, is there anything else they can do to you? There's nothing else, right? And they cannot touch your immortal soul because it's spiritual. It is unseen. It is not physical, but it is the soul. So that's the worst they can do. But God is able to destroy the body and the soul in hell. God can kill us in this life. Then he can kill us again in the life to come. He can destroy our body and our soul in hell for all eternity. And if we deny Christ because we're afraid of dying for Christ, then what will he do to us? He will destroy us. He will destroy body and and soul in hell for all eternity. If we are ashamed of his words, then what will he do to us? He will destroy us in hell for all eternity. So the fear of God and the knowledge of the day of judgment and what will happen on that day should be motivation to cause us to not fear man, but instead to fear God and to be faithful to him and do what he says. When people have more fear of man than fear of God, then they're going to obey men. They're going to conform their will to whatever pleases the men. So if the men tell them, you better quit speaking up. You better not speak the word of God anymore. And they fear men more than God, then what are they going to do? They're going to quit speaking. They're not going to do it anymore. But if they fear God more, and they know that God's word tells them, whatever you hear in the darkness, speak in the light, whatever I whisper in your ears, proclaim on the rooftops, and these people are telling me I can't do that. Well, I have to fear God more than these men. I can't listen to them. I can't obey them because what they're telling me is in direct contradiction to what Jesus tells me. And he is my master and Lord, so I have to obey him. I can't obey them even if it means they're going to kill me. Even if it means that I might suffer in this way. This is the way that we have to be. Man cannot kill the soul in hell, but God can. And it's better to suffer death of the body in this life and go to heaven for all eternity than for your life to be spared now for another 10, 15, 20, even if it's another 50 years, and then die and go to hell for all eternity. This is the way that we have to, to look at it. But we have to have our mind fixed on the day of judgment and our mind fixed on the life to come and the judgment that will come through the power of God. Isaiah 51. Isaiah chapter 51, verses 12 and 13. Isaiah 51, 12 says, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? and of the Son of Man who is made like grass. 
that you have forgotten the Lord your Maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, that you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor, as he makes ready to destroy. But where is the fury of the oppressor? So here God is rebuking the people. Right? He is the one who comforts us. He is the one who gives us our hope, who tells us everything's going to be all right, who tells us you have nothing to fear. Do not be afraid. Right? He's the one comforting us. But if God is the one comforting us, then why would we be afraid of a man who dies and the son of man who is made like grass? That this man who is grass and who is going to die would have more esteem Right, that we would have more consideration of him than we have of the Lord our maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. Is there any man alive today or who has ever lived in human history who it can be said he stretched out the heavens? Is there any man who can be said that man laid the foundations of the earth? This is not true of any man. It's only true of who? Jesus. Only true of God. God is the only one who's done that. And who's the one comforting us? God is. So why would we be afraid of men who seek to contradict the comfort of God? And why would we listen to them and conform our life to them because we're afraid of them instead of conforming our life to the will of God? This is what we have to do. An example of this would be Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Verses 13 to 18. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they refuse to bow down and worship the image of the king. The king's orders, right, his commandment was in direct contradiction to the law of God. And because what he commanded was contrary to what God commanded, then they could not and they would not obey him and do what he said even though he threatened to put them to death. And he made good on his threat. Just God overcame it. Verse 13, chapter 3, 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you did not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Right, isn't that back to Isaiah 51, verse 12? Yeah. I, even I, am he who comforts you. What God can deliver you out of my hands? Well, there's one God who can. Yep. That's the Lord God, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So their fear of God exceeded their fear of the king. Their obedience to God 
was greater than their obedience to the king, to the point where they said, we don't even need to answer you on this, right? We are so resolute in our minds and in our actions of the will of God and what we are going to do, it doesn't matter to us. You can threaten us all day long. We are not going to bow down and worship your images because this would be a violation of the first, second, and third commandments of God. And the reason they did that is because they knew what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 10, 28. That yes, Nebuchadnezzar could kill their body in the furnace, the fiery furnace, but God could destroy their body and soul in a fiery furnace. Right? Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace was temporary, right? It only lasted for a moment. But the fiery furnace of God is eternal, is eternal, and this is how they were able to overcome a fearful situation. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs on your head are all numbered, so do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Not only does fear of God help us overcome fear of man, but also here, the love of God, the love, the care of God for his people. God loves his people. And does God not know how to protect his people? Does he not know how to care for his own? That he forgets what we're going through? He's unaware of what's taking place? That, that he's off on vacation somewhere? He's taking a nap? And he doesn't see that there's a persecutor that's trying to kill us? Is God not aware of everything that's going on? This is what he's telling them. You need to trust in the fatherly care of God, in the kindness of God. God knows how to take care of his own people. Is God lacking in power to deliver us? Is he not aware of what's going on? Of course he is. Here, Jesus uses an argument from the lesser to the greater. Two, two sparrows, right? Two sparrows are sold for a cent. They're so worthless. They are of so little value that you can buy two of them for one cent. This is the sale that's going on. Actually, in the Biden economy, it'd probably be 10 cents now. But back then, right, it was two sparrows for one cent. This is how cheap they are. Yet, not one of these creatures created by God, sustained by God throughout its life, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Not one sparrow will ever die and fall to the ground apart from the awareness of God, apart from the will of God. God is the one who cares for them and is watching over them. Also, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do any of you know how many hairs are on your head? No, none of us know. None of us know how many hairs are on our head. But God knows. So does God know more about you than you know about yourself? Yes. yes. Does God love you more than you love yourself? No. Yes. Does God love your wife and your children more than you love your wife and your children? Yes. yes. God loves his people more than we love ourselves or more than we love any of our own relations or any of the people that we know on this earth. And God is more acquainted and familiar with every aspect of your life than even you are. So do you think if God who knows how many hairs are on your head does not know that there's some tormentor out here trying to persecute you, trying to put you to death, that he doesn't see what's taking place? 
and that God is not able to intervene and to help us in our time of need. God knows all of these things. So if he knows the hair, then he knows our circumstances, and he knows the plots of wicked men. And then he says, do not fear. Don't fear for this reason. You are more valuable than many sparrows. You're not only more valuable than one sparrow, you're more valuable than many sparrows. Many of them, and not one of them, falls to the ground apart from the will of God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Matthew 6, 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So don't fear them. Do not fear them. God will take care of his people. Verse 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men... I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Here, we've often said the Bible teaches by way of contrast. And here we have two things contrasted. The one who confesses and the one who denies. These are opposites. These are contrasts. And here we also have two things to motivate us. The promise of blessing and the threat of cursing. Right? Both are needed in the Christian life. We need the promise of blessing to encourage us, to spur us on to love and good deeds. And we need the threats of a curse to give us the fear of God so that we don't grow weary in doing good, but we press on and obtain those things that God has for us. Here, the fear of men, the fear of persecutors, might lead us to deny Christ, to deny him and not confess him before men, especially when he said that they're going to be brought before governors and kings for the sake of Christ. They're going to have to stand before them. And when they're before these important people, these powerful people, then you might be tempted to deny Christ, to not confess him. Well, Jesus tells us why it's important that we confess him before men. Verse 32, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. This is the honor that Christ will bestow upon his faithful servants. Those who were not ashamed of Christ, but stood before men, even obstinate men, even men where it's them versus a hundred of them. They're the only ones there. Like Stephen, when he was all by himself, standing in front of all of these enemies, 
yet he did not deny Christ, but he faithfully confessed Christ, what will Christ do for this person? What will he do for Stephen on the day of judgment? He will bring him forward before his father, and he will confess to his father that this one belongs to me. This one is a faithful slave of mine. He will bestow that honor upon his people. We confess Christ before men, but he will confess us before his Father in heaven. Is that not a great honor? Isn't that something to live for? To set before us as a hope? To set that reward before us? Don't we do this, you know, with kids, with different ones? Right? We give uh, some prize, something. If you do this, if you reach this objective, if you reach this goal, then this is the prize that you will get as a way to stimulate people to press on and to do what it is that they ought to do. Well, that's what Christ is doing here. Don't we want Christ to confess our name before his Father, before his holy angels in heaven? Well, then what do we need to do now? We have to confess him before men. We need to confess him in this life. Now the curse. Whoever denies me before men, we might say, oh, it's not that big of a deal, you know. I'll just confess him secretly in my heart. Right? I'll do it in my heart and in my mind, and I'll do it around favorable company, but if I'm in a difficult situation, then I'll just keep quiet. I won't say anything, or, or I might even deny Christ, right? I might even deny him in that way. If we deny him before men, then he will deny us before the Father who is in heaven. He will bring us before his Father and say, this person here is worthless. He's a no good wicked slave. He said that he was mine. He said that he belonged to me. But then he denied me before men. He would not confess me. He was ashamed of me in this life. Now I am ashamed of him in the life to come. And I will not own him as my own. But he will say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Right? Depart from me. I never knew you. So this is what is at stake. We cannot be ashamed of Jesus Christ. We must confess him in this life before men before our family, before the church, before the people we meet in the world, right? wherever it is, whatever the occasion calls for, we must confess Christ and we cannot be ashamed of him. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 and verse 26. Whenever Jesus says, whoever confesses me and whoever denies me, many people would say, oh yeah, I confess Jesus. I believe in Jesus. But there's more to confessing Jesus than just saying, I believe in the name of Jesus. Everyone believes in the name of Jesus. Right? Everyone confesses Jesus in one way or another. But there's more to it than just saying, yes, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, or I'm a Christian, right? Many people will say that. They'll even say it publicly. They'll say it in the workplace. But what does that mean, right? We have to define it. There has to be content to it. Chapter 9, verse 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Here, to confess Christ or to deny Christ, there's a connection between Jesus and his word. Yep. Jesus and his word. The 
Christ that we're confessing must be the true Christ of the Bible, not a false Christ. And there are many false Christs, false Jesuses that are out there. And many people will confess Jesus, but the Jesus they're confessing is not the Jesus of the Bible because he's not defined by his holy word. They're ashamed of the word of Christ, but then they'll say the name Jesus and they'll attach to the name Jesus some corrupt theology that isn't going to make anyone upset or mad. And then they'll say, well, I believe in Jesus and I confess Jesus. The Jesus we confess must be the true Jesus, the one that's found in the Holy Bible, right? With the correct meaning in all of his words, everything that he says. So if a person says, I believe in Jesus, but then they say, well, I don't think homosexuality is a sin. You can be a Christian homosexual. And I'm not going to speak out about this in the workplace, because if I do, I might get fired. I might lose my job. Are they being ashamed of Christ? Well, according to Luke 9, 26, they are. Because they're denying Christ and his word. Because Jesus says it's a sin, but they're ashamed to speak up and say that because they're afraid they might lose their job. Or they're afraid they might get pushed back. Or they have a loved one, uh, one of their family members, who's practicing that sin, and they don't want to lose that relationship, so they're going to keep quiet mm -hmm. about it. So they might be convinced that they're confessing Jesus, but because they're denying an aspect of his word, they're not confessing the true Jesus because they're not telling people what Jesus says about this sin or about some other sin. Also, if we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. Second Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 4. says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you did not receive, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. So here, the apostle is saying that there are people who preach another Jesus, not the Jesus of the Apostle Paul. Right. Well, is it good enough to confess that Jesus? No, you can't confess that Jesus. You have to be ashamed of that Jesus, that false Jesus. And we have to confess the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Apostle Paul. A different spirit, a different gospel. Again, everyone says they believe in Jesus. The Mormons believe in Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus. Roman Catholics believe in Jesus. The Armenians believe in Jesus. Hindus, Buddhists, they all believe in Jesus. So everyone confesses Jesus to an extent. But the question is, who is the Jesus you confess? Is he the Jesus of the Bible? Or is he the Jesus of your own mind and of your own making? And how do we know if someone is confessing the true Christ? They will not be ashamed of his word. They will speak and teach the word of God truly and faithfully, and they're not going to be ashamed of any part of the word of Christ. This is the way that we have to be. Also, we also cannot be ashamed of his people. Right. To be ashamed of his people is also to be ashamed of Christ. Right, to be ashamed of Christ. Second Timothy chapter 1. 
2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. It says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. So there, Timothy cannot be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, that would be the word of God, nor of his prisoner, that would be the Apostle Paul, the messenger of God, the one who is speaking the word of God. Right? If he says, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, but then he distanced himself from the Apostle Paul because he knows that if he associates with Paul, then he might get some flack as well. Right? The suffering that's coming on the Apostle might blow over onto me as well, and I don't want to have to deal with those things, so I'm just going to distance myself, disassociate with him, not have anything to do with him. I'm going to be ashamed of him, but I'm not ashamed of Christ. I believe in Jesus. This is the way people behave. But here, he connects the testimony of the Lord with the prisoner of the Lord, and we cannot be ashamed of either. So we cannot be ashamed of Jesus, of his word, or of his people. But we must confess Jesus his word, and his people, and not deny Jesus, his word, or his people, understood in the true, proper, correct way. So this is what he means to confess me before men, or to deny me before men. Verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Here, Jesus, again, the context is, he's talking about hardships, strifes, enmities, the divisions that will happen in this life because of our, the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's telling them, I did not come to bring peace to the earth. Now, some people will say, well, that's a contradiction because it says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he's the prince of peace, right? He's the prince of peace. So how can he say here that I did not come to bring peace on the earth? Or if we look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 14. Luke chapter 2. And verse 14. It says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, on earth, peace among men, with whom he is pleased. Yes, there is peace that comes through Christ, but it is only among men with whom he is pleased. Those who belong to God, the elect. Christ brings peace between God and man, and he brings peace between man and man, but not universally, right. not exclusively. This is based upon the will of God, right? Those whom God has chosen to receive the peace of God, they will have peace between God and they will have peace with one another on the condition of faith and repentance. But not all have faith. Not all repent of sin. There are those who reject the gospel, who do not believe. And in the case with them, we will not have peace. So the believer will have peace with God, and he will have peace with other believers, but he will not have peace in this world. He wants peace. He wants to live a quiet, peaceful life. He wants and pursues peace with all men, but all men will not let him have peace 
because men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. So the peace is not exclusively peace. It's not universal peace. It's not unconditional peace. But it will be peace with some and enmity with others. And that's what he's talking about here. He's focusing on the enmity because he's talking about their hardships, the difficulties. In other places, he talks about peace and he talks about the relationships that we have in the household of faith. But that's not what he's talking about in this passage. He's preparing them for the difficulties and the hardships of the Christian life. And one of the things he is telling them is do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring universal peace between all men. It's a pie in the sky fantasy and it's never going to happen. So anytime you hear people talk about peace, give peace a chance, make make love, not war, uh, war and peace, whatever. Okay, yeah. All they see, war, what is it good for? Right? Absolutely nothing. They, those are great. People talk about peace and all these types of things all the time. But they always mean it in some humanistic uh, way, contrary to the truth. Just Let's all just get along, overlook our differences, and, uh, and not speak about the truth. You just mind your business, I'll mind my business, and we'll all get along together. But that's not the peace of the Bible. The peace in the Bible has to be consistent with the truth of God about sin, and it must be based upon uh, faith and repentance. Faith toward Christ and repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus is speaking of here. So he did not come to bring peace, but rather he came to bring a sword to the earth. And where will this sword find its way? I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Even in the home, in these relationships where there is typically love and harmony, there's going to be division because of Christ. A man against his father, right? The daughter against the mother, the daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. And it's all going to come down to faith in Christ, the word of God. The Christian, the believer, the believing man wants to follow God. He wants to do the will of God, but his father is an unbeliever. He's a wicked man. And he scoffs at his son because of his newfound faith, right? The daughter, she wants to obey God. She wants to do the will of God. Right? She grew up in a Muslim home, but now her eyes have been opened. She's rejected Islam, and now she is a Christian. But her mom, who is still a Muslim, isn't going to accept that. She's going to ridicule her. She might throw her out of the house. She might reject her because of these things. Right? This is the way it's going to be. Brother to brother, daughter-in-law to mother-in-law. When there's one believer and the other is an unbeliever, it's not going to be peace and harmony. There is going to be enmity because at some point... The life of the believer is going to be in direct contradiction to the life of the unbeliever. Right? How can that not be the case? When the believer is wanting to obey God and to do the will of God, and the other one has no concern about obeying God or doing the will of God, that eventually the unbeliever is going to invite the believer, hey, we're all going to go out and get drunk tonight. Do you want to go with us? And the believer has to say what? No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I used to go with you to do those things, but now I can't do those things. And what are they going to say? Oh, well, tell me about this faith that you have. It sounds so wonderful. No, that's not the case at all. They're going to ridicule them. You think you're better than us. What, what are you better than us now? You're holier than thou. 
You won't go out. What do you think? We're all going to hell because of that. This is what they'll do, right? They will begin to ridicule and mock, and there will be tension and division that will come up because of these types of things. This is the way it is in the Christian life. Now, of course, we pray for our families. We want our families to be saved. We want there to be peace and harmony in the home, but not superficially. We want right. it to be based upon truth and upon common faith, common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, if that is the case, then we should praise the Lord. But that's not always going to be the case. It will be the case some, but not all the time. And this goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. It goes back to Noah and him. It goes back to uh, Isaac and Ishmael, to Jacob and Esau. In all of those situations, there was enmity in the home. There was strife, discord in the home because one was a believer and the other was an unbeliever. So this is the way it will be. Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 11. Revelation 19.11 says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So here, Christ brings enmity now, and now in this present life, it is the believer who will be the oppressed one, who will be the persecuted one, and it will be the unbelievers who will stand over them, who will ridicule them and mock them. But then on the day of judgment, it will be Christ who comes, and he will make war against the wicked, against them, and he will wipe them out. So this is the way it's going to be, and we shouldn't be surprised, even if that comes to our own family. Yeah. Okay, verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Right? When we hear these words about our family, our father, our mother, Right, our brothers, our sons, our daughters, we think, oh, that would be very hard, right, to lose our family, to lose our relationships, right, to, to have this type of difficulty. Well, how important is it that we be faithful to Christ? Right. How important is it that we confess Christ? Well, if we love our father and mother more than Christ, we're not worthy of him, meaning we're not going to go to heaven. We don't belong to him. If we love our son and daughter more than Christ, then we're not worthy of him. Right? And here, 
more than Christ. Not that we shouldn't love our father and mother. Of course we should love our father and mother. They're the ones that gave us life, in a sense. They're the ones that raised us, they cared for us. So yes, there should be love and reciprocation in that way. And yes, we should love our sons and daughters. We should care for them. We should provide for them. We should raise them in the proper way. But here he means you cannot love them more than Christ, right? Our love for Christ must exceed our love for any of our natural relationships in this life. And we cannot deny Christ or his word in order to accommodate our father or our mother or our son or our daughter. So if the son goes wayward and begins to live a sinful life, then what do I have to tell my son? I have to tell him, son, what you're doing is a sin. And if you don't repent, you're going to go to hell. And you can't do these things. And if it comes to a point that it's doing that it's in the home, then there is even a point where the father has to say to the son, you cannot stay in this home if you're going to continue living this way. You cannot do this. You cannot practice this in the home, right? Or with the father or mother or whatever it is. We have to love Christ more than them, right? He must be supreme. And we have to even love him more than we love ourselves even more than our own life. Don't we typically love ourselves more than anyone else in the world? Isn't this usually the case? Love your neighbor as yourself. It's natural and normal for us to love ourselves. No one ever hated his own body, but he loves it. He cherishes it. He cares for it. So there is a natural love for ourselves that is good and right in the sight of God. But our love for ourselves cannot exceed our love for Christ. If preserving my life means denying Christ, then I have to love Christ more than I love my own life. Isn't that what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did? Does anyone want to get thrown into a fiery furnace? Does anyone want to die that type of death? Naturally, would they on their own voluntarily jump into a fiery furnace? No, of course not. So that's love. Love of self tells me don't jump into a fiery furnace. But in this case, the only way they could avoid that was to deny Christ was to love themselves and their own life more than they loved Christ. And what did they have to choose? They had to choose Christ over their own life and be willing to die and lose their life for the sake of Christ. And if we don't do that, if we don't take up our cross and follow him, we are not worthy of Christ. We're not worthy of him. We're not worthy to call ourselves Christians. We're not worthy to have him take us and confess our name before his father and before his angels in heaven. We're not worthy for him to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. So is this an issue of life and death? Is this essential? Is this black and white? Yes. Is it a gospel issue? Yes. This is an issue of heaven and hell. That's what Christ is saying. If you don't do this, then you will not enter the kingdom of God. Whoever has found his life, will lose it. If you seek to hold on to your life in this present world and to the point of sin, then you're going to lose it on the day of judgment. But if you lose your life for the sake of Christ, then you will find it on the day of judgment and you will enter into the kingdom of God. 40 through 42. He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives one of these little ones even a cold cup of water to drink, 
Truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Here, to receive the messenger of Christ, to receive the child of Christ, is to receive Christ. And to receive Christ is to receive the one who sent Christ, the Father. There's a one-to-one-to-one correlation between the Father, between Christ, and between the child of Christ, the child of God. You cannot reject any one of them and have the others, right? If you receive the child, then you receive Christ and you receive the Father. If you reject the child, you reject Christ and you reject the Father. Right? This is the way it works out in day-to-day life. Right? Is Jesus Christ here in the flesh with us today? No. But who is here today? His body. The body of Christ is here with us. And if we deny and reject the one who is sent by Christ, then we are rejecting Christ. And we are rejecting the Father. But if we receive him, then we are receiving Christ. And we are receiving the Father as well. This because of our union with Christ. The life of the believer is hidden with Christ, right? This is as it says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, right? I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Who lives in the Apostle Paul now? Christ lives in him. So to receive the Apostle Paul is to receive Christ, and to receive the Apostle Paul is to receive the one who sent Christ. So we cannot deny the people of Christ and have Christ at the same time. It's all a package deal together. right? This is the way it is. 41. Whoever receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and who, who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Right? Not everyone is called to the office of a prophet. Right? This is very rare. Very rare. Very few people in the history of the world ever were called to the true office of a prophet. However, if someone who lived during the time of a prophet received the prophet because he was preaching the word of God to them, accepted him, received him, listened to him, helped him, did whatever they could to benefit them and promote them and to assist them in their ministry, though that person is himself not a prophet, what will he receive on the day of judgment? He's going to get the reward of the prophet. What about a righteous man? A righteous man. Right? If you receive the righteous man because he's a righteous man, you're going to get the righteous man's reward. You're going to get rewarded with him. Right? Because you see that and you're drawn to it. Right, is attractive to you. You're not neglecting it. You're not rejecting it. You're not saying, I don't want anything to do with this guy. He's a righteous man. Right? Because if he's a righteous man, he's going to suffer. He's going to have hardships. He's going to have difficulties. But you're not repulsed by him because of those things. Instead, you see his righteousness and you say, I want to be with this guy. I want to help him. I want to assist him. I want to have him as my companion and as my friend because I know Iron sharpens iron, one man will sharpen another. He's a righteous man, and I want to be a righteous man, so I want to be associated with him. I'm not going to reject him and deny him, but I'm going to receive him and accept him. Well, if you do that, what kind of reward will you have? You'll get the righteous man's reward. You will get the same reward as he does. 
And then whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water to drink. Truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Whoever is a disciple, even the insignificant ones, even the little ones, yet because they are a child of God, you give them a cup of cold water to drink in their need, in their affliction, you will not lose your reward. So we cannot, we have to love our neighbor as ourselves. We have to love the household of faith. We have to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. And if we do not do that for them, then Christ will deny us and reject us on the day of judgment, and we will not receive the reward. We have to associate with Christ, with his word, and with his people. We cannot be ashamed of them, but we must promote and do all that we can to champion Christ, his word, and his people. 